Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 4th, 2021, and this is show number 830. Well, I had a fantastic week this week because I got my COVID shot. So I am super excited that in about six weeks, I'm going to have what my friend Diane refers to as Freedom Day. And uh, Steve got his the day before me, so we will be uh, fully vaccinated in six weeks, and I could not be more excited. I feel like I could feel the beginning of the end. I hope you live somewhere where you can get yours, and uh, of course, everybody should go get it. You know, with a 15-plus year streak of never missing a weekly episode of the NoSillaCast, I will move heaven and earth to make sure I never miss a show, including impinging on a few friends of mine to uh, pick up the slack if I go on vacation. But luckily for me, Chit Chat Across the Pond does, isn't quite as much pressure, so I've been a little more relaxed with only producing a podcast when I have a guest I'm really excited about talking to. We've missed a few Chit Chat Across the Pond's light lately because I don't freak out if I don't find a guest. The flip side, though, is that relaxed attitude lets me double up on episodes when I want to. This week, I did a Chit Chat Across the Pond Light and an episode of Programming by Stealth, so you get two for the price of one. Let's first talk about Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. Matt Campbell, co-founder and chief technology officer of NUMA Solutions, is an accessibility expert, and he asked me to come on the show to talk about two big concerns he has. His goal in coming on the show is to increase awareness on these two problems in hopes that the message will get to people who can head off the problems. Let's talk about these two different things for just a moment. The first is called accessibility overlays. Accessibility overlays are intended to help companies pass accessibility standards tests, but according to Matt, they often actually make websites less accessible. To solve this problem, he's written an open-source browser extension for Chrome and Edge called Accessibibi. It disables these overlays if they make your web browsing problematic. Now, the second problem is a little tougher. It's a problem with Cloudflare's new service entitled Remote Browser Isolation. This technology is designed to help companies protect their employees from browser-based attacks, replacing VPNs. But the way it accomplishes this is a problem for accessibility. So the idea is that your employees browse to a website, but the URL request goes to Cloudflare instead, where it then navigates to the site. Cloudflare, I'll get this right yet, Cloudflare renders the site, and then it sends only JavaScript draw commands back to your browser. This means the original elements are not sent to your web browser, which means screen readers have nothing to read and mobility tools have nothing to connect with. Now, Matt participated in the beta and warned Cloudflare about the problems, but the service came out of beta recently without concern for accessibility in spite of his efforts. Now, I do really encourage you to listen to this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond to hear the full details of it. But remember, Matt is hoping that uh, maybe the IT folks amongst us can keep their collective ears to the ground within their own companies and make sure that this tool doesn't get implemented without understanding the implications for accessibility. After my conversation with Matt, I signed up to test Cloudflare's remote browser isolation myself so I could watch what it's doing in the JavaScript console. I haven't figured out how to make it go on my own yet, so I'm going to need Matt's help with that. I did reach out to the Cloudflare people about this problem using their press link. I got a response, but since it was a technical question, the salesperson responded with, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We will review this specific case on our side as we aim to make these products accessible to everyone. I have pinged our team. 
I'm not entirely sure if this means go away, you bother me, or if it means we'll get back with you soon. I'm going to keep pinging my contact until I find out the answer to that question, and you'll be sure I'll report back on this. Again, definitely go listen to Chit Chat Across the Pond 678 with Matt Campbell on accessibility overlays and Cloudflare remote browser isolation in your podcatcher of choice. And now let's talk about the second Chit Chat Across the Pond. This was a programming by stealth with Bart Bouchatz entitled My First Git Remote. I like that because it sounds like a little kid getting like, my first car. <laughs> anyway, last time on Programming by Stealth, Bart introduced the concept of remote repositories, also known as remotes. It was one of those episodes where we learned a lot, but we didn't get to apply anything that we learned. In this week's installment, though, we get our hands digitally dirty as we create a bare repository, which is a repo with no working tree, and we declare it to be a backup of our local repo. We learn how to fetch and view remote branches and tags, how to push everything to the remote, and then after making some changes, push them to our remote backup. We're still in a bit of a sandbox as we do all of this on one computer inside a couple of local folders, but the lessons exercise our new muscles to get ready for the big leagues. Last week, I told you all about the new cool tools they added in Parallels Toolbox, one of which is called BreakTime. It's a little applet that dims your screen and locks you out of playing at intervals you define. I wanted to see if it could improve my success at meeting the 12 stand per day goal of the Apple Watch. I'm happy to report back that it definitely has improved my awareness of how often I just sit for extended periods of time. I set uh, break time to go off every 50 minutes for a duration of three minutes. When it goes off, it usually lets me finish typing a sentence or I can snooze it or I can tell it to skip this break. Most of the time, I simply just do as it tells me. Now, I often have little chores I need to do, like, you know, putting away folded laundry or filling the pet food containers, and these things only take just a couple of minutes. So instead of letting those nag at me that I have this big stack of little tasks, I use the break time reminder to get them done. I also have started purposely getting off my backside to tell Steve things in person instead of our usual method of texting each other inside the same house. It's especially good at getting my break time credit if he's downstairs and I'm upstairs. Now, break time gives you full credit for these unreminded breaks as well. Unfortunately, as I suspected, if it does give you credit if you just sit there and don't play with your keyboard or mouse. So if I watch a video for three minutes or more, I have to remind myself to stand up and run around a bit. I noticed it gave me credit twice during the recording of Security Bits today when I was definitely sitting there not doing air, you know, just sitting in front of my computer. But I wasn't using my hand, so maybe it's like a carpal tunnel rest. Anyway, I'm quite pleased with break time from Parallels Toolbox, and I plan to continue to use it. Now, one more thing on Parallels Toolbox. I wrote to the folks about the accessibility issues that I talked about last week, and my contact, Alexander Patse, told me that they would definitely look at it and acknowledge that they were kind of still pushing back accessibility improvements into the schedule due to other more important tasks. So they have it on their schedule, but they just keep pushing it back. I'm hoping that bringing it to his attention might nudge that forward in time a bit. He also told me that they're coming out with a redesign really soon. That's always my luck. Right after I review something, a new version comes out. Alexander said it's really nifty, and he hopes I'll test it for accessibility with my other friends and give them feedback and uh, test it out and give it a good fleshing out. You can be sure I'll tell you all about it when it comes out. Many years ago, Steve bought a Vantage View weather station from a company called Davis Instruments. 
this weather station transmitted over radio frequency to a base station with a display inside our house so we could see the temperature, humidity, rain, wind direction, and speed. He was absolutely delighted with it, even though in Southern California, it's pretty much always 72 degrees outside. As fun as it was to see the weather on the little display inside the house, he also wanted to see the same information reported on the internet to a service like Weather Underground so he could access his weather information from anywhere. Steve worked for literally weeks on a way to accomplish this task, and in the end he was successful. The basic problem was that the base station that goes inside the house didn't have a network card. He bought a device from Ambient called a, it's called a Meteo Bridge. The Meteo Bridge is basically a little TP-Link router with an Ethernet jack and a Wi-Fi card. It comes pre-installed with the Meteo Bridge software, which is how you can tell the weather station to talk to the internet. I remember after he finally got this working, I asked Steve, I said, hey, you should write a review about the whole process because that was really cool and, you know, how you got it on the internet. I remember at the time what he said. He said, I couldn't possibly explain what I had to do. It was far too complicated. Well, I believed him because I remember at one point he actually had to get NOAA involved in helping him. And yes, I mean the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Turns out they really like that people have weather stations and share the data because it gives them the data to work with for their cause. We're going to circle back to talking about the MeteoBridge software in a bit, but I want to explain why I'm talking about this so many years after he bought the Davis Weather Station. Back when Steve first set up the Davis Weather Station and had to do that bit of Frankenstein assembly to get on the internet, only serious weather nerds were doing this. But now weather stations are all the rage. The technology has advanced quite a bit, and there's hardly any faffing about required to get them on the internet. We know this to be true because for Christmas, Steve bought our son Kyle and our son-in-law Nolan, bought them each their own ambient weather station WS2902C, and they were a breeze to set up. Steve helped them install the weather stations, and because the base stations come with built-in Wi-Fi and the software necessary to communicate with weather services online, it took like maybe a half an hour to get them displaying data on the internet, and so they could get it from their phones. It was a beautiful thing. Now, the only problem with the new ambient weather stations for the kids was now that they were way cooler than Steve's older Davis weather station. The new ones collect more data than Steve's Davis, and they have bright LCD displays. Steve didn't complain, but I knew he'd be really happy if I got him one of the new ones for his birthday. I also figured he needed one that was better than the ones he gave to his kids, so I splurged for the Ambient Weather WS2000, which is one model up from theirs. Now he can track all the weather info we had before, but also solar radiation, UV levels, as well as sunset and sundown, I'm sorry, that should say, as sunrise and sundown times. The base station inside the house is a beautiful, bright TFT display that is absolutely gorgeous. And most importantly, it was a breeze to get on the internet. Now, a few of our friends have gotten weather stations recently, and I was pretty sure our friend Diane was feeling left out, but she really didn't want to spend the money to get one herself. We knew the Davis would find a good home at Diane's house. The weather station is still perfectly functional, and if you view the stats on the internet, it's really swell. But that meant we had to figure out how to get it on the internet at her house. And this is where the real story begins. It was quite a nerdy adventure, and I don't believe that we would have ever succeeded without the knowledge that Bart has been pouring into my brain for all these years. As we come across pieces I learned from Bart, I'll tell you about them. 
When Steve got the new ambient weather station, he took down the Davis, he unplugged the base station along with its Meteo Bridge Wi-Fi router, and he removed the Davis weather station from the Weather Underground online service so he could have a clean start with the new ambient weather station. Again, the ambient was a dream to set up, and after about a week, it was time to get to work on giving Diane the Davis with its Meteo Bridge. We knew it would be tricky to get the Meteo Bridge online at Diane's house, if we had been able to go inside her house to do it. But with all of us keeping our strict quarantines, it would have been an absolute nightmare to walk her through it remotely. It's just, I mean, an impossible task. To work with something this fiddly over a FaceTime call was not something we were looking forward to. We decided to do as much as we could at our house before handing it off to her. That turned out to be a very good decision because it took the two of us the better part of three days to get this working again. We plugged the Meteo Bridge into power, and we waited for its little blinky lights to settle down. Now, again, this Meteo Bridge, it's just a little router. It's all it is, but it has this specialized software on it. We, so we, we plugged it in, the blinky lights settled down, and right then, the Eero Mesh Router app announced that a new device had connected. It showed its name was Meteo Bridge, and it told us our, the IP address of the Meteo Bridge. It was 192.168.10.34. If you have an Eero Mesh router, you're going to understand already what has gone wrong. But let's just set that aside. In order to configure this device, all we have to do is point a web browser at that IP address. So we dutifully entered 192.168.10.34 into Safari, and it responded with, can't connect to the server. Well, that's weird. I tried pinging that IP address from the terminal, and I got no response. I sat there baffled for a bit, and then I realized what was wrong. 192.168.4.x is our main network. 10.x is the guest network. And the Meteo Bridge was on 10.34. No problem. We'll just switch over to the guest network on the Mac we were working with. But we got the same error indicating no connection to server. And that's when I remembered that the whole purpose of using a guest network is to allow devices to connect out to the internet, but not have access to your internal network, which means they can't talk to each other. So I always put all the dodgy devices, you know, especially IoT devices, on my guest network so they can't do any damage if they get compromised. You know, things like Windows PCs, those go on the guest network too. So we're trying to be on the same network as the Meteo Bridge, but we aren't really on the same network. We're, we're getting squirted out to the internet in no place else. Steve remembered that our previous router, the Netgear R8500, had a toggle where you could allow devices on the guest network to talk to each other and then toggle it back to having every device be isolated. The Eero has no such toggle that I can find. I'm pretty sure I must have set up the Meteo Bridge originally using the Netgear, or I should say Steve did, and when we slid over to the Eero, the Meteo Bridge just came along for the ride without any fussing around with it, because I, I, I would remember having to deal with this. The Meteo Bridge does have an Ethernet jack on it, like I mentioned up front, so we tried hardwiring it into our network to avoid that whole guest network problem, but for some reason the Eero app never showed it had connected over Ethernet, and without the Eero app seeing it, there's no way I could ever talk to it. And I never did figure out why the Ethernet jack didn't work. Now, picture how you'd tackle this problem. You've got a device, it's on your network, but you can't talk to it at all, and the only way you can talk to it is over the network. What would you do? Well, all I could think of was to try to reset the Meteo Bridge. The Meteo Bridge has a reset button on it, so I held it down for a while. 
No joy. I held it down for a longer while. No joy. I unplugged it, held it down for a while, plugged it in while holding it down. No joy. And of course, by no joy, I meant it kept happily joining the network, the guest network, at 10.34. It was time to go off to the Googles for a solution. Well, it turns out there is a way to set the Meteo Bridge up without network access to it, but it's not like anything I've ever seen before. Luckily, Meteo Bridge is very well documented on the, on the wiki at MeteoBridge.com, and in there I found the solution. The fine folks who support MeteoBridge have created an online simulator that looks just like the web interface to your own device. You enter your network credentials into the simulator and then download a configuration file that contains those credentials. Now, we were a bit trepidatious typing in our Wi-Fi SSID and password to a random site on the internet, but I figure that to use that information for harm, someone would have to figure out where I live and then drive to my house to get on my Wi-Fi using that password. And of course, I don't reuse it anywhere else. So we set the, the simulator up and we downloaded the configuration file. So I should elaborate that what we did in this configuration file was we gave it the main network, not the guest network. So we're going to try to replace the credentials with the ones to the main network. To update the little TP-Link router with the new MediaBridge configuration, you simply put that config file you've downloaded onto a thumb drive, you plug that into the router, and you boot it up. The router finds the file, updates its settings, and you should be good to go. When the Meteo Bridge booted up with the config file from the thumb drive, we squealed with delight when the Eero app told us a new device had joined, had uh, called Meteo Bridge, had joined with a 192.168.4.x IP, which meant it was on the non-guest network. It was on the good one. We typed the new shiny IP into a browser and boom, we were in. We might have danced a little jig at the pure joy of this. I mean, we're, at this point, we're like a day and a half into trying to fix this. Well, at this point, I figured my work was done, and Steve could just take it from here. He was the one who had successfully gotten both kids' weather stations and his own new one onto Weather Underground and another service called Ambient Weather, so I didn't think I would be needed. In retrospect, it was pretty adorable of me to think this nightmare was over. We were just now descending into the seventh circle of hell. To conduct a weather uh, connect a weather station to Weather Underground, this is all you have to do. You navigate to wonderground.com. You enter the location of the device. There's a button you're supposed to push, which is supposed to open a new web page that will reveal a station ID and a key it will have assigned to you. You then enter the station ID and key into the MeteoBridge interface. Once Weather Underground and the MeteoBridge know about each other, the MeteoBridge should start pumping data up to the Weather Underground website. But on that day... After entering the info about the location of the weather station into Weather Underground, clicking the button, it triggered an error. The error simply said, sorry, something went wrong. That's it. Well, without this button working, we can't get a station ID and key, which means we can't get the weather station onto Weather Underground. Steve and I tried probably 12 different ways to make this work. We changed browsers, we emptied cache, we typed in the address for the device using a map. Uh, we tried uh, just using a map to drop the pin for the location, but all methods just return, sorry. Remember at the beginning of the saga, I said that BART pouring information in my head for more than a decade came in handy? The first time I used things I learned from BART was earlier when I tried to ping a device was, that was on a different network, which gave me the clue to the problem. The second time I used something I learned from BART was when I was faced with this sorry error. In Programming by Stealth, we often interact with our web apps through what's called the browser console. 
It's a little area that pops down at the bottom of a web page. This is where real error messages get printed, not human-friendly ones like, sorry. I popped open the console by holding down Command-Option-C and there were two errors listed. One said 400 and the other one said 404. Now, error 400 indicates that the server cannot or will not process the request due to something that is perceived to be a client error. Well, that wasn't much help, but error 404 means the server can't find the requested resource. My suspicion from this was that the service that should generate our station ID and key had actually gone down. It was time to abandon that whole path because there's nothing you can do from the client side to fix a 404 error. Luckily, Weather Underground isn't the only game in town to which you can send your weather data. Another option is Ambient Weather, the makers of our new weather station. This interface is even more simple to set up. At ambientweather.com, you start by selecting Add a Device. You're then asked to enter the location and a few other facts about it and create a name for it. Then you enter the MAC address of the network interface card of your weather station, and in our case, that's the Meteo Bridge. The MAC address was nicely printed on the outside of the box, but it was also available in the Meteo Bridge interface. Once we've told Ambient Weather to expect weather data from the MAC address and our physical location, we need to tell the Meteo Bridge to send it to Ambient. Back into the MeteoBridge web interface on the services tab, we tell it to send ambient weather and the MeteoBridge makes us enter the MAC address again, which makes no sense because it knows its own MAC address. We click save and we get an error. <clears throat> All right. Interpreting this error is the third time that Bart's decade of knowledge dumping comes in handy. I looked at the error and it says something about SSL and it gives us an error number. I looked the error up in the Googles and I learned that the error is saying that I'm trying to make an insecure connection to a secure service. In other words, the MeteoBridge software is sending an HTTP request when the ambient weather site is expecting an HTTPS request. Now we don't have any way of telling the MeteoBridge to use HTTPS when contacting ambient. After poking around a little bit in the interface, Steve pointed out something curious in the license tab of the MeteoBridge interface. There's a warning which says that our two-year license had expired and hadn't been renewed since 2018. To be honest, we never even realized there was a license to be renewed because, you know, it had always worked. Back in 2016, secure websites were not widely used yet, but in 2021, they sure are. Perhaps if the license was renewed, we'd get a new version of the MeteoBridge software that supports SSL. Right next to the expired license notification, there was a Soviet-era style-looking PayPal logo, so we gave it a push. I'm sure you're going to be shocked to learn that we got an error. I forget exactly what the error was, but we surmised that it was telling us this PayPal link was no longer functioning. We went back to the MeteoBridge wiki to see if there was a way to pay that wasn't from 2016, and we found a link to where you could pay for a license renewal through a completely different service. Now, before pushing the button, I scrolled to the bottom of the web page of the wiki to see the data had been updated. I thought it might be an indication of whether paying for the MeteoBridge license might yield a modern version of the app. I couldn't have been more delighted to see that the wiki page had been modified in January of 2021. We paid the $25 for a two-year license, and as soon as we loaded the new license key into the MeteoBridge, we saw the physical device start its blinking boot-up sequence. When it settled down, we went back to the webpage for the MeteoBridge, and we were again delighted to see a dramatically changed view into the device. 
It was the same kind of tab web interface, and it clearly wasn't rendering well. It had giant empty gaps in the view, but that actually sorted itself out over the next day. I don't know exactly why. Anyway, we could see from screenshots I'd saved before the upgrade that our software revision went from 2.7 in 2016 to 5.1 in 2021. We excitedly flipped to the services tab and the ambient weather section no longer reported an SSL error. We went to ambientweather.com and again we were delighted to see that the weather data was streaming into the website from Diane's future weather station. At this point, I think we both cried a little bit that we had finally succeeded after three days. The next day, Steve scheduled to hand the weather station off to Diane. Before the handoff, Steve went back into the services tab on the MeteorBridge software to verify that ambient weather was still working. Not only was it functioning, Weather Underground was now working. Our suspicion, based on knowledge learned from BART on how to read website errors, was correct. The web service required to give us the station ID and key had gone down right when we needed it, and we, it was now back up. So we were able to enter that information into the Meteor Bridge, and now that weather station reports to both services. The last and very scary step was to change the Wi-Fi SSID and password to Diane's network and hit save. Now realize, as soon as we did this, there would be no turning back. We would not be able to make any changes to the device because it would no longer know how to connect to our network. We entered our Wi-Fi info and we hit save and rebooted the device. When the Meteor Bridge normally boots up, one of the LEDs blinks slowly, then it blinks quickly, and then it goes solid. But that's not what happened. It continued to blink quickly, and it never went solid. We stared at it and kind of debated at length what to do. We saw that we had two options. We could start over by downloading the configuration file from the simulator and going through every single step again, or... We could act on blind faith that it actually was working, that it was uh, doing the fast blink because it couldn't get on the network. And we could hand it off to Diane, close her eyes, and hope it worked. Now, my personal vote was for option two, even though in my heart I figured nothing had gone right so far, so why would it work now? I convinced Steve that we might as well try the path, the path of least work first. We gave it to Diane, she brought it home, plugged it in, it joined her Eero network immediately, telling her the IP it had received, she navigated to the IP in a browser, and it worked perfectly. She could see her new-to-her weather station reporting data on weather underground and ambient weather. I'm kind of glad Steve never gave you a review of the setup of his original weather station, because I think this story of discovery was a lot more entertaining, at least for us. We enjoyed ourselves, even through the emotional ups and downs. I enjoyed it because I got to work with the tools Bart has been teaching me all these years. Steve enjoyed it because it actually worked in the end. Diane enjoyed it because she's got a weather station just like all the rest of the cool kids. I often talk about how awesome the people are who help keep all the shows at the Podfeed Podcast available without ads, including those who do it through Patreon. This week, I'd like to highlight two people in particular. Bruce is a returning patron. At some point, Bruce stopped contributing, but then he came back. I love that he was able to do this because, you know what, it's all about you being in control of your money and what you want to support. I do thank everyone when they contribute, and I never even go look at who stops. So it's a fun little surprise when people like Bruce come back. The second person I'd like to thank is Ryan, who decided to make his pledge bigger. That to me is a super great vote of confidence. If you'd like to support the shows through Patreon, you know where to go because you know everything good starts with podfeed.com, so it's podfeed.com slash Patreon. 
Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts, fresh back from a sunny bike ride, huh? Yeah, no, this is, I, I'm liking the fact that uh, we've reached that point in the year where the sine wave is at its steepest and the days are getting noticeably longer. It's, it's so nice. Like every day is, is nicer. Yeah, every day is nicer. And my, my being seen lights remain as vital as ever, right? I use those 12 months of the year, but my seeing lights have become token. They're on the bike just in case, but I don't need them every day, which is so pleasing. Oh, wow. I still can't believe you bike ride at night. I just, I, we're such babies here. I mean, night, no. Sprinkling, no. Cloudy, <laughs> ah, might stay indoors today, you know? <laughs> I think if you lived here, you would have, a, your, your, your calibration would be set differently. Yeah, well, you either do that or you just, be a big tub of lard sitting indoors all the time one or the other like i'm convinced if i lived in the midwest i would weigh twice what i weigh now i wouldn't i don't know that i would have the the energy to go out and slog it in the snow and everything so anyway i don't give yourself credit but anyway we (laughs) we'll see we're here to talk security all right let's kick in so some follow-up from last time, just the, the one piece. Uh, we talked last time about an article from Motherboard that outlined a technique where you could abuse services offered in the US for redirecting SMS messages. Right, right. That, I, that was horrifying. It was horrifying. For $16, right? Yes, yeah, 16 whole dollars, and you could, hij- you could silently hijack just the SMS part of someone's uh, SIM card. So if you actually hijack their SIM, their cell phone stops working. So obviously that's a danger sign. And then you're in a race, right? The user realizes you've stolen their SIM card and they're now in a race to reclaim it before you can steal all their money. But if you can redirect their SMS messages without depriving them of cell service, I mean, it could take me weeks to notice I wasn't getting SMS messages. Right, especially since you'd still be getting iMessages. Yeah, exactly. And WhatsApp so, and every but the other way, my phone bings and bongs and tweaks and twerps. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that, I wouldn't notice. So it was a deviously devious uh, abuse of the service. And it was Motherboard found and highlighted the problem. Uh, well, Motherboard are happy to report that uh, there has been a very positive development. All of the US carriers have changed how they uh, do their um, SMS routing. Basically, this ain't possible no more. Oh, good, 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 good. It, it, you can still SIM swap on somebody. SIM swapping is a whole different bag of hertz. Yeah, but you're, so I just want to make sure yes. we're saying just this $16, here's, you know, take over somebody's SMS, that's gone. That's gone. Yeah, so that is I, I a development. A, I had a question when I read about this. Um, we we had talked about the reason this was possible was because these services exist that allow like the dentist to text message you. Yes. Did this now disable that the existence of that? It changed how they work. So I think the dentist can still text message you, but I don't think the, the, the dentist can have their existing cell phone number take over the SMS message. I think they may need a dedicated cell phone number. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. <laughs> Basically... You can't take the SMS messages from a cell phone number, but you can register a number that's not a cell phone and have it receive SMS messages. So Mm. you as a business can still receive SMS messages, just not to a cell phone number. I got you. Which is fine, right? Like you say, it it doesn't matter that the the number is not a cell phone number. You just have a, a dedicated SMS number, problem solved. So it's, yeah, it's good. It's all good. 
And Whew. since we're happy with US cell carriers, we may as well give T-Mobile a little pat on the head. Uh, they are the first in the race to fully roll out the Shaken and Stir uh, anti-spam API. Well, they're not anti-spam APIs. They are APIs for proving the authenticity of caller ID which is the first step in any effective spam fighting. If you can't be sure where the call is coming from, how can you possibly apply any sort of filtering? So Shaken and Stir are about guaranteeing cryptographically the origins of traffic, and then you can filter it. No, oh, okay. So anyway, this and is really the good. first ones to do it. We're expecting the others to come along, hopefully. They're all at various stages of their rollout because this is mandated by the Federal Communications Commission, FCC. I was I was oh, okay. to spell those out of my head or I end up saying FEC or FCC or I always get them wrong. So anyway, the Federal Communications Commission have mandated they must do this. They're all in the process. But T Mobile is first across the finish line. So they get a little pat Okay, in the head. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um next up we have a deep dive that in my mind, was a short deep dive. This actually started off as a, as a story with a one-line summary, and I thought, yeah, I could turn that into a deep dive. And I, I think I ran it by you, and you went, oh, yeah, cool, let's do a deep dive. So I started writing, and then an hour and a half deeper had gone deeper. by. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, wow. Yeah, there yeah. are quite a bit of notes on this. Okay, good. So what's so, the topic? It's something called Smart Block. And it's a new feature from Firefox in version 87. So Firefox are on this quarterly release cycle. So it used to be the case that they would release whenever they had new features. And now they have exactly the opposite release cycle where they release every quarter and whatever features are ready, they get released, which is, I think, a much healthier way because it means that corporate IT can plan. So there will be a new (laughs) Firefox four times a year and it will have whatever features are fully baked at that point in time. And uh, okay. what just went ding in their oven for Firefox 87, which has just come out, is Smart Block. And Mozilla have taken a completely different approach to anything anyone else is doing to preventing cross-site tracking. So it really caught... So everyone won... Well, not everyone. Apple is extremely <laughs> proactive at trying to fight this cat-and-mouse game with the tracking industry. And Firefox are philosophically aligned with Apple in that score. And what's really interesting is that they're both trying to achieve the same end, but they have gone about it in fundamentally different ways. And it's going to be really interesting to see which of these two techniques works best. And what's probably likely to happen is that uh, there will be some learnings made, perhaps by both sides, perhaps by Apple. But it's certainly a very interesting experiment. So... The only way to explain why this is cool is to describe the problem. So problem to be solved, very Nocilicasto way of us. And then what Safari does, and then what Firefox have started to do. So I actually want to, something. this is something I just finally found a place to say it, right? This is something I've been meaning to sort of hammer home in one of these segments when there was a time to slot it in. But we're talking about tracking prevention And I'm afraid people are possibly putting too much faith in their browsers because they're conflating tracking with cross-site tracking. Okay. So nothing your browser can possibly do can stop Facebook knowing what you do on Facebook. So Because that's first party. It's first party, precisely. So what that means is that you can have the world's most privacy-aware browser. You could be using Brave, right? 
doesn't matter. If you spend your entire day on Facebook doing 20 million things that reveal everything about you, your browser cannot protect you because the information isn't being collected with the help of your browser. The information is being collected on the server. You're interacting with their service. They know what you're doing. They're creating the HTML and handing it to you. So would uh, that also be true of incognito because you're in there typing in all that personal information? Yes. So incognito stops your browser from storing things locally like cookies and stuff. But the server is what's tracking you while you stay within the same website. So your browser is utterly powerless, utterly powerless. Right, right. And I'm not sure people realize that with first-party tracking. And first-party doesn't mean single website. If you have large mega-corporations, Facebook's servers are first-parties when you're on Facebook. Facebook servers are first-parties when you're on Instagram. Facebook servers are first parties when you're on WhatsApp. So if you go from Facebook and open an... uh, Well, you don't really get to Instagram from Facebook, though. Doesn't matter. Because... Then I don't know what you mean. What I mean is that the server is tracking everything you do on Facebook, and the server is tracking everything you do on Instagram, and the server is tracking everything you do... And those... And those all know about each those other. Those all know about each other because they're all owned by okay. the same people on the back end. So the server owners right. can collaborate to share right, information. Right. So the first party can be a lot bigger than you think, right? Google is the first party for YouTube, search, maps, mail, calendar. Oh, okay. That's a, okay. I hadn't really thought about it in that context at all. And certainly Facebook wouldn't have bought WhatsApp and uh, Instagram if they didn't want to collect all that data together. Of course, of course. So, and the EU tried to stop them bringing it together, and they succeeded for a couple of years, but we all knew they were going to lose that battle, and that battle is now well and truly lost. Their backends have been unified. And Google gave up on keeping them separate. I think it was 2012 when Google basically put out their new terms of service. And they, I mean, Google were extremely open about it. It's all mm-hmm. the same backend. They, they, were, they just said it outright. 20, I think it was almost there was 2012. And... So that's been the case. So first party is bigger than you think. Where third party tracking comes in is where the server owner is not actively collaborating with the tracker. So it would be unfeasible for every single little pokey blog on the entire internet to have a deep relationship with Facebook in the same way that Instagram does. That could never work. That would be organizationally impossible. So... For that kind of tracking you across the internet, your browser is involved because the mechanism that we use for this is third-party cookies. And so that means that your browser is part of the puzzle, which means your browser has the ability to do something because it's required for the process. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the scope of what is possible to protect us from. Okay. 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 So the other thing it's probably worth reminding ourselves of before we go further is what a cookie is, right? So when your browser asks the web server for something, that, that's how the internet works. You type something into the URL bar, your browser figures out what server is hosting that web page, sends them a request, the server sends back a response. And in that response, the server can hand 
a special piece of information that has, for reasons I will never understand, been called a cookie. It should be called a token. It should be called a token. That's a perfect word for it. But no, they called it a cookie. It's a piece of information. The website maybe has, because it leaves crumbs. Maybe, but they give it a all token back. doesn't necessarily give cr- leave crumbs, right? But it doesn't actually leave crumbs. It's been abused to create virtual crumbs, but it doesn't actually leave crumbs, right? It is literally, <laughs> okay. it, is literally it hands you a piece of information that, you know, it's, a, it's generally a massive random number. It's, it's generally a giant mm-hmm. big random ID. And your browser holds on to that random ID until the next time it talks to the same web server, and then it gives back that token in every request it sends to the server for more pages. Okay. And this allows the server to recognize you, right? right. If I go to office.com and I go to, the, I, I go to the URL from my inbox and I look at the address bar, my URL is 100% identical to your URL, but I don't see your email. How is that possible? Well, the answer is because of cookies. Hmm. So Microsoft okay, gave me... because you logged in. But how could I log in? Because the URL to log in and the thank you for logging in page also have the identical URL for you and me. And yet mine says, hi, Bart, and yours says, hi, Allison. Oh, okay. okay. So what happened is the browser, the server, it, uh, the first time I showed up, the server invented a new cookie. It just took a random number generator, made a giant big glop of hex, uh, noted it in its database and said, I am giving this glop of hex to someone, mm-hmm. handed me back that glop and a login box. I typed my username and password into the login box, hit submit, my browser sent the same piece of glop back. The server went, ah, oh, great, I now know that bloobity blue ABCD3123 is Bart Bouchots. And every single time I communicate with Microsoft server, the same random glop goes over and back, and that is how I am logged in. And that is how the server can hand me my email, my contacts, my calendars. So cookies are vital to the internet, and they are... 100% dependent on the browser remembering the random piece of glop. Right. So the server makes yeah. up the glop, hands it to the browser, the browser gives it back. And if the, if the server in question is the one in the address bar, so if I type facebook.com, then Facebook is known as the first party because I went there. That is where I intended to go. So they are the first party. The second party is my browser. And oh, I never knew who was second. There you go. So it's the okay. first party is the server. The second party is your browser. And as we are learning or have been learning in programming by stealth, a web page comes back as a bunch of HTML. And that HTML contains references to other things like images or videos or whatnot. And those images or videos could be anywhere else on the internet. That URL doesn't have to start with the same URL as what's in the address bar, right? I can go to Twitter and see an image from... Flickr or something, right? Right. Or on podfeet.com, you can embed a video from YouTube. I'm at podfeet.com, but I'm seeing a video from YouTube. So the HTML from podfeet said to go get the video from YouTube. So that means YouTube is a third party. And notice I said a third party. If on the same blog post you embedded a tweet and you embedded a Flickr photo, then there are three third parties. YouTube, Flickr, Twitter. But they're all third parties because they're not where I went and they're not me. So they are third parties. Okay. So that's just what the terminology means. It's important to understand. So now 
Let's imagine that I am Evil Trekkers Arus. I just made up that company name, right? I thought you'd enjoy. All right. So Evil Trekkers Arus are trying to build a business by following people around the web. So their business model is they pay website owners a small amount of money to embed a piece, a reference to their server into the web page. And they charge advertisers a little bit more for selling that information to them. So you pay a little bit to the website owner and you charge more to the advertiser's profit. Right? That is the business model of the tracking industry. Wait a minute. Who's the... I, I don't Evil Trekkers are us. The advertiser is. Okay, so Evil Trekkers are us. They pay website owners to track and they sell okay. the tracking data to advertising companies. Oh, I got you. And, the, and you're saying they can... They, they pay less Why do you than, say they... they why pay do you the, say they charge more? So the, okay, so the way that the reason they're not broke is because they pay less out to website owners than they charge. Oh, I got you. Okay, they they charge me a dollar and or they give me a dollar and they charge the adver- advertiser two dollars. Got yeah, it. Yeah, because otherwise okay. it's not a business; it's a got disaster. It. Okay. <laughs> so right. that is their business model. So they need to encourage website owners to include in their web pages HTML a reference to Evil Trackers Arosa's website. And for simplicity, let us say that Evil Trackers Arosa are not particularly modern. They're doing it the old-fashioned way. It's a one-pixel-by-one-pixel transparent GIF. So, I, you know, Evil Trackers Arosa pays some silly blog $2 a month to stick a one-pixel-by-one-pixel GIF hosted on Evil Trackers web server. So I'm wandering along in my browser, and I come to my favorite Blog, photography blog or whatever, and they are a, they are one of the sites Evil Trackers or Us pays. So I look at, I read the various stuff about the latest cool lens, and my browser gets handed the HTML for that review of the lens, and it also gets told in that HTML to go load this image from Evil Trackers or Us. So Evil Trackers or Us say, oh, no cookie in that request, so I'll make up or some random glop and hand it back. That's fine, Evil Trackers or Us are now calling me ABC. I then wander over to my favorite puppy website where I'm looking at some videos of puppies being adorably cute, as they inevitably do. And uh, Adorable Puppies is also uh, being paid by Evil Trackers or Us. So this time when I load the one pixel image, I do have a cookie. So my browser hands it back and Evil Trackers or Us goes, great, ABC is now at this website. So ABC likes both photography and puppies. Cool. You then tootle off and go and read some news and you're reading the latest uh, opinion piece about how, I don't know, Senate Bill 324 is superb. No idea if that bill even exists. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Maybe it's some sort of ultra loony. God knows what it is. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Right. (laughs) You stepped right in that one, Mark. The point is Evil Tracker Ross now knows your political leanings because you're either very, very against Senate Bill 324, or very, very in favour of Senate Bill 324, but that, you know, starts to tell you quite a bit of information, because you could be bothered reading about Senate Bill 324, which means you either love it or hate it, right? You're not, you're not, meh. So, this is all working, because your browser is being handed a cookie the first time you encounter Evil Tracker's one pixel GIF, and every subsequent time you meet it, as you brand around the internet... Your browser is handing the cookie back, and so Evil Tracker or us get to build a profile of you as you wander about the internet. So that is how... Do the Evil Tracker companies actually collaborate with each other, or are they all standalone? Mm. 
it's complicated because there's all sorts of deals and there's all sorts of consolidation in the industry. But in the past, there would have been lots and lots of trackers and it sort of consolidated into a much smaller set. Certainly not helps. That would make sense. Because if I start Evil Trackers 2 RS and I only convince five websites to to embed that tracker, then I can only tell where they've been to those five websites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you really need to be ubiquitous, which is why Google buying DoubleClick was such a big deal. Because DoubleClick are Evil Tracker. They were the king of Evil Tracker RS. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when Google bought them, they really, really bought into tracking half the internet. Yeah. And the other okay. very common tracking is those Facebook like buttons. Th- those are literally gifts from Facebook server. Literally. Like they're not even one yeah, pixel by one pixel. I, the fact that I put one on my website for a while, I just, I, I'm ashamed, Bart, when but I found out fun. what they actually were. I was like, I want people to push the thumbs up and I get some credit for that in some way. It was like, nope. But the, the social <laughs> engineering behind those buttons is genius. Evil yeah. genius. <laughs> but it's darn impressive, you know? So I, I don't feel bad. I, I sort of very, very grudgingly admire them. Like, as much grudge <laughs> as I can fit into it, I, that's as much as I give them. So it really genuinely is all about the cookies, right? The third-party cookies, the cookies that go across websites. So not this, not from the site you visited directly, from the places that site told your browser to go fetch additional stuff. So you might think this is very easy to fix. We just well, hang on, hang on. Let me let me stop you. So when you say stuff your browser told you to go fetch, but if if I've got an embedded Discord, for example, on my live page, and I've got an embedded YouTube video, I haven't caused cross site tracking, have I? Not uh, no, not necessarily tracking. Right, tracking is what you have caused is a third party relationship to come into existence. Yeah, and, and but, your but browser it's not necessarily being tracked. There's no evil tracker in that. Not necessarily. Conceivably, right? If if Discord was in the mood for becoming a tracker, and if Discord had managed to put, embed themselves on lots and lots and lots of pages all across the internet, then they could conceivably use that data to track people. Well, one of the <laughs> one of the embedded things is YouTube. Then there's, well, then, yes, absolutely, there is tracking going on there. Absolutely, 100%. It's a Google product. Third party, so third party tracking is happening to people when they go to podfeet.com slash live. Yeah. Google know that you saw the video, that you were there. And where you were when you saw it. And where you were when you saw it, because uh, somewhere in these show notes, but Mm -hmm. now's as good a time as I need to say it. When your browser, when I, okay, so podfeet.com contains some HTML and that HTML says to go get a video from YouTube. Mm -hmm. When your browser goes to that third party, it actually uses an HTTP header called referrer. I believe the header Mm -hmm. is technically misspelled, but that's neither here nor there. Which tells the website, the third party, what the first party is. And the reason for that is because it allows the third party to decide whether or not it's prepared to be a third party. So you know the way that for years, while bandwidth was expensive, image sites would not allow hot linking. Hmm. The URL to an image would work on the website itself, but the same URL wouldn't work on your website. Oh, the only difference is the referrer. And the referrer header is how that was implemented. So that's the legitimate use of the referrer header. The referrer header is also how your website knows what search terms were linked to it. 
Because the other place a referrer is used is when you follow a link, the referrer header is used to say where you came from. Well, and I think I get the benefit of those when I look at metrics for podfeed.com. I can see where did people come from. Yes, absolutely you do. So that's when someone clicks an inbound link, the same referrer header is used to tell your website that it's an inbound from somewhere else. But the illegitimate use of that header is to track you across the internet because Evil Tracker Pixel, that one gift pixel also has the referrer header as well as the cookie. So they know who and where the one pixel GIF was viewed. As okay. if you're looking at a one pixel transparent GIF, where it was loaded from, where it was embedded in. So they actually do know where as well as you're wandering around the internet. So the obvious fix is just disable third-party cookies, right? Only give cookies to the website in the address bar and don't give cookies to anyone else. And then they can't track you. And that is, that is a true statement. The problem is cookies can be abused to track people or used, that's me making a judgment call, one of the uses of cookies is tracking, but there are many other legitimate uses of cookies. That is how state exists on the internet, right? Without cookies, you can't log in to a first-party site, so first-party cookies definitely can't be disabled. But there are really, really leg legitimate uses of third-party cookies, like single sign-on solutions, which make all of our lives easier. So you can test this for yourself. If you turn off third-party cookies on the browser... I would say 95% of the internet will work fine, but particularly as you move into the corporate network and particularly as you start to use certain more advanced services, I know the BBC falls apart in a giant big heap of goo when you disable third-party cookies because their video service uses third-party cookies to connect into their websites. The internet begins to fall apart at the edges when you turn off third-party cookies. So the reason is because... There's no magic flag that says this is a good cookie and this is an evil cookie. If there was... Oh, we should have that. Yeah, that was actually, believe it or not, that's actually a, an April Fool's RFC, the evil bit. It was, <laughs> it was an actual submission to the TCP spec to add a bit into the TCP header to say evil or not evil so that firewall rules could be simplified. Um, wonderful April 1st gag. Um, so... It really does come down to the fact that you can't just block them all. You have to somehow decide these are good cookies and these are bad cookies. So Apple's approach to intelligent tacking prevention is convenient amnesia. So Apple don't stop anything being set. It doesn't interfere with how the websites work. It, as far as the websites you're interacting with are concerned, it's receiving everything just fine. So it says, yeah, sure, thanks for your cookie, cheers very much. And for the first 24 hours, it might even return it, depending on its algorithms. But uh, every time it goes to hand a third-party cookie, it checks its algorithm and its AI to see whether or not it should have forgotten the cookie. And every time it forgets the cookie, all of your previous history is disassociated with what you've done before, because you're basically a fresh, a fresh person as far as evil tracker so is concerned. would that mean you'd have to log back in to BBC or wherever? It, w it would if the AI gets it wrong, right? So the reason, the reason Apple have put so much work into intelligent tracking protection is to try to give you all of, the, all of the no tracking without inconveniencing you. And so they have all sorts of algorithms and rules and whitelists, so not whitelists, allow lists and deny lists. And okay. All sorts of algorithms. All, they continue to change the intelligence behind their approach for forgetting. 
But fundamentally, it boils down to what they choose to forget. Yeah, that would seem to be a a full-time job for 800 AIs to be figuring out all the time what's going to change. It absolutely is. It's a cat and mouse game. It is a complete cat and mouse game. Yes. Yeah. Now, the... It can be quite an effective approach, this selective forgetting. But you're still talking to Evil Tracker's server. So Evil Tracker is still continuing to build up all of the pieces of your profile. It's just that they get disconnected from each other every time Apple forgets. Oh, right. So for an hour, it knows I went to the puppies and to Flickr, but then it forgets about those and it learns that I went over to YouTube. Well, it, it knows that someone went to... So someone within the within an hour went to the puppies and YouTube, and then a different someone the next day went to the puppies and YouTube again. And if... So the tracker has both of those pieces of information. They just don't know they're connected to each other. So what the trackers are desperate to try do is to reassemble the profiles. They still have all of the pieces. Right. So they right. are absolutely determined to try find a way of connecting the jigsaw puzzle back together again and they are now prepared to accept probabilistic approaches so they don't care whether or not they're a hundred percent correct right if they're 80 percent sure that that's you and that's also you they're happy enough right well and they they lost some ability when uh People or companies like Apple stopped allowing you to see exactly what browser and what font yes. you were using and all that. Right, right? Yes. That used to be their connective glue. That was one of the techniques they used for connective glue. It's called browser fingerprinting. So the, because your browser looked too unique because every plugin you had installed got listed in the HTTP headers along with every language you support along with your local time zone, along with your fonts you have installed, along with, along with, along with. In fact, yeah. the physical dimensions of your browser window were a great one, because if you drag and drop, if you drag the edges of your browser window, you end up with a very random pixel width. If you don't always browse full screen. Very random. So they'll prefer so to people, do... Uh, yeah, so they're prepared to do things like if the same IP address has been doing the same thing within the same couple of minutes. It's probably the same person. Or if this profile mm. went from being Firefox on a desktop at this residential IP address to being, uh, you know, if, if, so if you imagine your laptop leaves your house and goes on to cellular, well, they're going to see the same cookie flip between being on a residential IP and then a specific cellular IP. And if they see that the same thing happens tomorrow, that's well, probably you again, right? And so right, reconnect right. the dots. And if you're prepared to accept an 80% success rate, because that's good enough, well, actually, you can do a lot of reconnecting. So Firefox wants to stop this by nipping the problem in the bud completely and never even speaking to the tracker. Don't send them the request. What? How do they do that? Uh-huh. So why that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Because I have been oversimplifying tracking by saying, imagine a one pixel GIF. And that is how tracking started. It was a transparent one pixel by one pixel GIF. But nowadays it's a cat and mouse game. So they've made things way more complicated. So nowadays, if I am the owner of a website and I want to embed a tracker so they pay me, the tracker gives me a script tag that I put into my web page. And that script tag loads some code from eviltracker.org. And that code will then load something from an actual tracking server. 
And because you have this level of indirection, the trackers can change their strategy without you having to change your web page. So basically, you load code, which then loads the tracker. And so because you load the code from the same URL, whoever controls that URL can change the tracker that gets loaded. So they can jump around between weird-looking URLs to their heart's content and so on and so forth. And you, the website owner, interact with the tracking company through a JavaScript API, just like we would use something like moment.js to do date calculations on our website, right? So we mm-hmm. include the script tag and then we call their functions. So right. you would include okay. the script tag for the tracking and then call their JavaScript functions. So if you were to just block the third-party sites, JavaScript would just start breaking all across the web and websites would start crashing and having errors and all sorts of stuff because the API that they're using to, to engage with the tracker they're being paid by doesn't work because it never got loaded. The function doesn't exist, code crashes, website functionality breaks, it's a mess. So that's okay, so why Apple do don't that. do that. You can't right. just do that in the naive way. Firefox have had a genius idea. Fake the APIs. Don't load them. Hand back entirely different JavaScript that has the same function names. Hands back data of the same type, so if the real function hands back a Boolean, and them back a boolean but just make it up just <laughs> fake it emulate oh, the api yeah oh and as i would imagine those apis are fairly consistent set right they have that's to be. not a whack-a-mole problem right they right? have to be because a tracker has to be ubiquitous to be useful as you explained so well earlier on and if you make the burden on the website owner you have to change your website every week because we're changing our trackers all the time no website owner is mm-hmm. going to do that. So then you're not ubiquitous anymore. Right. So they've got it. They have to keep it consistent and it has to be uh, ubiquitous. So yeah. it's going to be the same. Yeah. I mean, there may be, there may be 20 varieties yeah. or something. Exactly. There's a there's list not maintained. thousands and they're not changing. Correct. There's a list maintained of the top trackers. And, far yeah, and actually it's the top trackers you care yeah. about, right? Yes. Like if, if you got 80%. That's probably yeah. good enough, too. Exactly. Oh, that's spectacular. It's spectacularly genius. So they have faked out the most popular APIs, and the browser never talks to the server. It just pretends to the website, yeah, yeah, I got that API if you hear this. And the developer oh, calls so all funny. the function names, and it gets back viable answers, and it's not tracking you. It's genius. <laughs> it is absolutely genius. They are proactively faking the tracking. So that is why... <laughs> It is, that is what makes it smart blocking. It's wonderful. So oh, anyway. That is nice. Yeah. So I had that as a one sentence summary, believe it or not, but I thought that was well worth <laughs> a, a, a deep dive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know about everybody else, but I get way more out of the deep dives than I do out of the lists of cool things and interesting things that happen. So I love, I love the deep dives. I will always vote thumbs up for another deep dive. Cool. Okay, so with that out of the way, we do have an action alert for you. Um, You should absolutely positively update iOS 14 to its latest version because uh, Apple did one of those fixing a really nasty bug in uh, WebKit things. So So I I think that that was zero day too, right? I believe it was under active exploitation, yeah. And I got an alert that uh, watchOS needed to be updated too. It around the same time? I don't know. Yeah, if it was so WatchOS does have WebKit in it. So I just don't think it's as exposed. 
<laughs> I don't know yeah. if my watch has ever attempted to render a web page. If it ever did, it could be exploited. But I just I don't use any apps on my watch that make it do that. So I, I think theoretically the answer is yes. Yeah, I mean you should run both. Absolutely, yeah. Just update the update the update, right? Patchy patchy patch patch as we like to so say. So your phone and your and your iPad. Your phone, your iPad. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Throw the watch in while you're at it. Actually, this the, the watch one was real quick this time. Mm. I generally drag my feet on the watch ones because it's like, oh, it's got to be about 50%. It's got to be sitting on the charger. It's going to take like forever, which is probably like five minutes. But it feels like forever when you don't have your watch on and you got to just sit there and look at it. So yeah, I, I let my watch do itself overnight. And that has been spectacularly reliable in recent versions of watchOS. Yeah, I started doing that. Just Yeah, just do it because you can't trust me to agree. <laughs> oh, no, my watch is so vital to me. I, I, feel, na- like, I feel like there's something wrong. When my arm yeah, doesn't have... It's like have... getting in a car and not having a seatbelt on. Yes! what it feels yes. like to me. Or getting on the yeah. bike without that feeling of that snug under chin feeling of helmet in place. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it won't work without it. Yeah. Okay. So, worthy warnings then. Um, the guys over at Avast did a survey. So, they went to the two big app stores, iOS and Google Play. And they found basically the top... Fleeceware is the name we give these apps. Are you familiar with that term or should I explain it? Um, You might as well say what it is. So these are apps that offer spurious subscription services that are stupidly overpriced. So you get a free three-day trial and then the app starts charging you $20 a day to stick a sticker on something or whatever. So they're fleecing you. They're they're just sort of hoping you won't notice and they'll get a few days worth of 20, 20 bucks a day until you notice and cancel it. Uh, you know, I mean, until you get your next credit card statement, it could be quite a while. So it's right. unfortunately a successful business model. And it really, really shouldn't be on either of the, on a, certainly not on the iOS app store. But the point being, when Avast went and checked it out, they looked at 204 apps and they found out that uh, that allowed the attackers to fleece people of $400 million. So you can see why the attackers do this. Yeah. They get money from it. So, so the, the action-worthy warning is uh, pay attention and read the, does it say per month, per Correct. week, per day, per hour? And Apple have, like, Apple say it to you twice. If you try to subscribe to something in Apple, like, the pop-ups are from the operating system, the pop-ups can't be suppressed, and the pop-ups genuinely do say what the app is going to do. So when you're doing in-app purchases, actually read the text. It is telling you. They're just hoping that you'll do that human thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Click, click, click. I want my thingy. Well, and, and to complain about Apple a little bit, they make some of it overly complicated. I remember when I was doing the uh, video tutorial on Keep It from Reinvented Software, and I literally had to write to the developer to try to understand how the pricing worked because it was a subscription, but he had to write this really complicated paragraph with like four different pricing things just to try to explain it. And I still couldn't follow it until he explained it to me one on one. And it was because of the way Apple structures things that he couldn't just say blah, you know, blah per month. That was not the answer. He had to do a lot more work than that. So I don't know. And uh, Apple are continuing to evolve their app store to make to give app developers more choices so that app developers can do things better. But it, you're right. There, there yeah, this was a while ago. This was a few years ago. So hopefully they've gotten better at that. They have gotten better, but I'm not prepared to say they're good at it. <laughs> okay. But I will continue to encourage them to continue that trend. 
Now, the next worthy warning is one that I, I am afraid may affect quite a few of our more nerdy listeners. Um, there is a company called Ubiquity that make very inexpensive but very cool Internet of Things devices. They do really good routers, they do cameras, they do all sorts of stuff. They are beloved in the nerd community because it's nice hardware at a reasonable price and they have a functionally nice service. Unfortunately, we knew they had a data breach because they did tell us something about it. But we now know, thanks to a whistleblower who uh, and Brian Krebs, that the company massively underplayed the breach and in so doing put all of their users at horrible risk. And that is deeply disturbing because what it showed was a toxic culture within the company. And so you now have these amazing products that I find I can't possibly trust because of the culture within the company that's been exposed here. Yeah, so part of what this was, was that the the lawyers uh, pushed back on the language that was proposed to tell the users what had happened. Yeah. And sort of threw Amazon Web Services under the bus saying, well, it made it sound like it was AWS that had caused the problem, not their own their own mistake. So there's two things that happened that are equally, that are differently troubling. So what you're describing there is the wording. So they didn't even name the third party, which is why they were able to get away with right. being vague, right? So what they said was due to a problem with a third party provider, all this bad stuff happened. But we now know, thanks to the whistleblower, who the third party was. It was Amazon Web Services. Now, the way Amazon Web Services works is that it's software as a service. You, as the consumer of the services, are 100% responsible for securing them. They give you a place to put stuff, and they give you the ability to protect that stuff through 20 kabillion APIs with 20 kabillion different options for controlling access from this is a public thing to this is utterly locked down with two-factor auth. Like, they give you a toolbox, and you mm -hmm. are responsible for configuring your, they call them buckets, right? You, you pour your data into buckets. So I love the terminology. <laughs> and you have lots and lots and lots of choices for how that bucket should treat access. All the way from, this is a CDN, to this is massively locked down. And the entire spectrum is available to you in the APIs. It is 100... But to the hacker... The the uh, uh, I'm sorry. According to the whistleblower, the hacker had access to the LastPass account of a Ubiquity IT employee, so they had root administrator ability to get into AWS. Right, and also they had so in order to get at the, the there's a couple of steps in the chain, but at one point in the step in the chain, they had misconfigured their AWS. Oh, that's a separate problem than there are. Than there the were last many steps, right? To, to get from okay. attacker has his toe in the door to complete ownage is never one step, right? It's always a chain mm -hmm. of events, right? You have to have a, a series of unfortunate events. And so, you know, some door is left slightly ajar, which allows you to get some key, which allows you to open a lockbox, which allows you to get a, you know, a secret code, which allows you to open a safe, which finally gets you to the master key, right? It's always a sequence of steps. And one right. of those steps was indeed getting at an employee's last pass vault. But another point in that chain was simply a misconfigured AWS setting. So now, a lot of companies have had problems like this. 
But the the companies that we applaud are the ones who say, okay, here's what we did wrong. Yes. This is what happened. We we have reset your passwords because this this data could have been breached. We don't know for sure what's been breached, but your password's been reset. Go put in a go put in a new password and open kimono, throw yourself on the mercy of the court. That's not at all what Ubiquity did. Correct. Right? So Ubiquity they, intentionally they, they actually the obfuscated it. Yes. They intentionally muddied the waters to deflect blame from themselves, which is just wrong. So that is the first of the two things I find very objectionable about what, about their the, the culture they had. But it actually gets worse, believe it or not, than simply downplaying that the technical experts made a recommendation that all user passwords be immediately reset because the keys protecting them had probably been compromised. The lawyer said, no, don't do that. That's not yeah, just that miscommunicating. Yeah, that is an yeah. action. That is experts telling you what you had to do to protect your users and choosing not to do it because you'd look bad. That put users at genuine risk. And legal should not be allowed to block you from protecting your users. That is a sick, sick culture. I listened to a lawyer talk once at a conference. He made a really interesting point. He said that the corporate lawyer's job is to advise the CEO of what to do to best protect the company. It's right. the CEO's job to make the decision on whether to take the lawyer's advice. The, in in a, a healthy company, the lawyer doesn't make that decision and the, uh, the CEO go, well, I can't do anything because the legal said this. It, they're an advisory role. And, right, and I be... always think about that in this kind of case. It's like, yeah, you can have legal telling you something stupid. Well, he's not even <laughs> stupid, right? Lego can tell you that, say, if you do this, you are taking on this risk. Or yeah. if you do this, you're right. This uh, could make you look bad. Well, uh, guess why what is makes Legal you look saying worse? that, right? That's the thing that gets me. Surely that's the PR arm should be telling you what looks bad, right? Legal should be saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do this, you are exposing yourself to this risk of class action lawsuit or whatever. If you don't do this, you're exposing yourself to this other risk. They should just be telling right. you about and if risk. They, if, they knew, if their legal knew what they were doing, they would have been able to say, this risk, the risk of not changing everybody's password is actually higher. Right. Because that's negligence. And, yeah. Yeah. Actively not doing it when IT told you. Yeah. Whoa. That is, that is really unfortunate. And I believe another key phrase that jumped out at me was that their logging was, n- that they were negligently, their logging was, was negligently inadequate or something like that. Yeah, Ubiquity had negligent logging, no access logging on databases, so it was unable to prove or disprove what had been accessed. But yep. the attacker targeted the credentials to the database, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, that is a fundamental <laughs> principle of a modern computing infrastructure, is that you have streaming logs to a third-party service. So the logs are not stored on the machine that could be under attack. It's vital the logs oh. are instantly oh, I streaming. I didn't know that. Yes. So there's so lots of they services. they made some technical mistakes, several technical several. mistakes, and didn't, didn't do the right thing when the problems happened. Yeah, so they hired in a consultant to tell them what they should do. That's correct. The consultant mm-hmm. told them what to do, and they decided not to. That's incorrect. They communicated mm-hmm. with their users dishonestly. That's incorrect. So one out of three. Yeah. <laughs> 
or one out of four if you count not doing it right in the first place is a problem. So, <laughs> you know, Other than that. it's, yeah. and that's very disappointing because the products are beloved for a reason. So they need, they need to be, they need to act decisively and very openly. And it needs to involve the word audit. <laughs> right. Right, right. They they cannot just tell us, yeah, yeah, we've learned a lesson. They have to say, here's the changes we're making, and we will be publicly audited every year for the next three years. Because that's the only mm. way I could ever trust that company. Yeah. Sad. Very sad. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, where are the warnings? That's cheered me up now. And I have I have palate cleansers, <laughs> so you'll be happy to know. Okay, good. And actually, I can switch into notable news and start the notable news with a Facebook story and be happy about it. What? I know. Facebook have decided to make a very substantial change to how you interact with the newsfeed. Now, I'm not an active Facebook user, but my understanding is that the newsfeed is kind of the single most important part of Facebook, right? When you log into Facebook, that is kind of it, right? It's the the flow of information you see in front of you as you log in. So, at the... Before the change... I'm not sure if the change is rolling out or rolled out. But anyway, pre-change, what you see in that newsfeed is based on the algorithm. So the Facebook algorithm decides what they think they want you to see based on what they think are the right metrics for determining what is good, which is basically engagement. Right, even though all of us want it to be most recent or people we actually care about. Well, I have good news for you, Alison. There are now three... There is now a three-way toggle for what you see that you can flick between very, very easily right at the top of the feed. And the three options are algorithm, which you and I both agree nobody should want because it's basically made on how can I make you as angry as possible uh, because anger makes you engaged. Chronological, in other words, just give it to me in the order it happened. Or favorites. Mm -hmm. These are the people I actually give two figs about. So the real question is, will it stick, though? Because you used to be able to switch it to uh, chronological, but every time you went back, it would have switched it back to the algorithm. So this is, the promise is that this is a prominent control that you will be able to toggle between easily always. Okay. Like different tabs. So I guess if it's obvious, you could look at it and just hit it. Yeah. Yeah, So the idea is it will be at the top of your timeline and you can toggle between them at your will as often as you like, and it will just be there. That is the promise. And that really caught my eye cool. because that is a fundamental that would shift. Be nice. That is a fundamental shift in Facebook's thinking for the better. Um, and what I definitely think is related is um, there's there's a podcast called Decoder, which is very good. It's Neil Patel interviewing people about cool stuff, very techy but very good. Well, he got himself quite the interview. Uh, Facebook hired the former Deputy Prime Minister of Great Britain, Nick Clegg, as their VP for Global Affairs. So Nick Clegg sat down for an hour-long conversation with Neil Patel about Facebook's approach to the feed, basically, and whether or not Facebook is making things worse by enhancing polarization. And he explains the thinking behind this change and why he believes Facebook is moving to make their platform not polarize people. I don't know if I believe everything he said, but what I was hearing was so, so not like what I was hearing a year ago out of Facebook. Yeah, I mean, that sort of sounds like opposite land. (laughs) Yeah, so either Nick Clegg is an idiot who's been had, or 
Facebook have finally realized the writing is on the wall and that the public are fairly cranky at them. Actually, no, not forget the public. The regulators across planet Earth are ganging up on them. So may, maybe their motivation isn't entirely, you know, maybe there's more going on here than just, oh, my God, we've created a monster. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I am definitely sensing a change in thinking at the top levels of Facebook. And Nick Clegg is their VP of Global Affairs. So the way he spoke gave me some hope that there is improvements happening within Facebook. I'm not a Facebook fan, right? He did not turn me into an adorer of Facebook, but I was nonetheless impressed. And at the very, very least, he spoke clearly and obviously and didn't sound nuts. So, you know, as I said, I thought it was a very good interview, so I'll link in the show notes. From From Android 11 onwards... Google are changing their APIs on Android so that apps can't scan your phone for every other app you have installed. My response was, hang on a what? second. What, they could do that? Yeah, you mean to tell me that right now today they can? And the answer is yes, yes, they can. And even after Android 11, they are making an exception for antivirus apps and file manager apps, which frankly isn't unreasonable. If you're going to allow third-party file managers, they probably should be able to see all the files including the apps. And if you want an antivirus, it should probably be able to scan for which apps are malicious. So, okay, if you're going to allow those kind of apps on your devices, they should be able to scan everything. I will grant you that. So, yes, this is a good move. How can this have been needed is is all I'm sort of left going. But anyway, there we go. Uh, And now we have a story that... um, does that does the opposite of make me happy actually? So we have app tracking transparency on the way, and from Apple, from Apple. So iOS fourteen point five is going to introduce this, so it's going to stop cross app tracking. So not cross website tracking, cross app tracking. And mm-hmm. Snapchat are busy experimenting with probability matching, which is basically the app equivalent of what we were talking about earlier where they're trying to find every possible clue they can get their hands on to try figure out that which user of which app is probably the same person, so they can probabilistically figure out what other apps you're using at the same time. They say they're going to stop when Apple actually turn on app tracking transparency because ATT is both a technical solution in that it blocks access to the uh, ID for advertisers, IDFA, but it's also a um, a rule that says that if the user says no, you have to honor the user's choice regardless of how you technically implement it. So it doesn't just block the use of IDFA, it blocks the act of tracking. So they say they will comply once ATT is properly launched. But the fact <laughs> but they're that trying they're, to get this figured out beforehand. Yeah. So the fact that they are putting their energy into proactively trying to work around tracking prevention tells you everything you need to know. meanwhile on the other side of the game of cat and mouse apple have have started to proactively block any app that they find using the adjust sdk because that thing tracks people and apple say it breaks the rules so part of the app store is that the one that was going on in china that was a big deal in china we talked about last time i don't think that's this no this is just this is just another one this is just an sdk it's called the adjust sdk there's there's lots of these sdks but Yeah, so basically Apple have said, no, this is a naughty SDK, and if you submit your app to the App Store, one of the things they do is run it through an automatic scanner, and one of the things that will then be picked up by this API, and if you're using it, the answer is no. 
So now they're going to have to play whack-a-mole finding those SDKs and things. Which they've been, that's a game they've been playing for a long time. You're right. No, but I mean specifically about tracking. Now that it's yeah, yeah, okay. I guess, I guess the whack-a-mole grows a bit bigger. It's not just malware. It's also right. ickyware. Ickware, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> and we okay. can switch back to good news uh, for our last two stories. So the PHP project resp- re- responded wonderfully responsibly to an attack which probably wasn't actually intended to cause harm, but was intended to highlight the need for PHP to change how they do things. So. PHP is an open source programming language that we're about to learn on Programming by Stealth. And the canonical source for PHP has been a Git server run by PHP themselves that PHP have full ownership of and full responsibility for. And their processes were imperfect. And someone discovered how to basically add code to PHP of their choosing and make it look like it was written by the founder of PHP. Well, frankly, they Mm -hmm. could make it look like it came from anyone, but they chose to make it look like the founder of PHP. And the code they injected is the computer science equivalent of a flashing luminous pink light that waves at you. So some news outlets reported this as PHP narrowly escaped terrible attack backdoor. But what I see is... Hacker made hacker demonstrated a problem with the most obvious, most foundable, least hidden. <laughs> this was not an attempt to actually backdoor PHP. This was an attempt to get media attention so that PHP would change their practices. It worked. PHP are no longer running their own Git server. They have outsourced that responsibility to someone who actually knows how to do that securely. GitHub. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's interesting. So from now on, the official source for PHP is PHP's GitHub repository. Problem solved. Play to your strengths. Do what you're good at. Don't take on stuff you're not good at. Outsource it to the experts. So to me, this is a good news story, regardless of any screaming headlines you may see. Okay. And then we end with a good news story brought to us by Alistair Jenks, the wonderful sometimes host and excellent Nasilla Castaway. 1Password have given their password generator a little bit of a makeover, which means it is every bit as secure as it has ever been. But the password it make, the passwords it makes are more human-friendly so that you can say them over the phone, remember them, etc. So it's a different spin on sort of my XKPassWD idea. They don't have a dictionary of words. They have a dictionary of plausible English syllables. <laughs> right, right. And they connect those together with random, what they call, they actually call them separators, which is the, the nomenclature I chose for XKPassWD. So you get syllables separated by separators to give you random, long, secure passwords that you actually can say because they're all based on syllables in English. Yeah, I'm going to give, I, I still wish they would uh, license your open source code. I was going to say, uh, for, I put that thing out under the BSD license. That basically yes. means have at it. Right. But I really wish they would accept that instead. And I've actually written to them asking them to do that because while these are pronounceable, like the example they give is dent zero mern, M-U-R-N dot drim for sly, S-L-A-I. Now, that might be a word we can pronounce, but it's not necessarily, those aren't necessarily memorable. 
And what yours does is memorable too. So, you know, horse, what is it? Horse staple? Correct horse battery staple is the canonical example from XKCD. Right, right. So this is good and it's it's typable and and pronounceable, but not necessarily memorable, not as easy to, I would have to go back and forth and look at that as opposed to being able to read it and go, okay, I can remember that for the 30 seconds it takes me to go over and type it. I would agree with you. I am not stopping using my own. I scratched my own itch pretty darn thoroughly. I am not changing. Um, But nonetheless, on the spectrum between what they had before, which was true random glop, which mm-hmm. was really hard to type. This and the, is better. And the other option they had was was separated words, but separated by spaces, which aren't accepted in on Lots certain websites, websites and yeah. services. So it, it sort of seemed like they didn't have the sweet spot in between, and now they do. Yes, they also integrate. There's, there's Apple are building a public API where websites can advertise using an HTTP header what their password rules are. And so yeah. this this smart password generator is compliant with that API. And there's also a central list of known password restrictions being collated and published as open source. And it's not a huge list at the moment, but it's building. And that is also read by this password generator. So they're doing yeah, their they call best. It smart passwords. So it looks and if the if the thing says I'm not going to accept semicolons, then it's not going to offer you a password with semicolons. Bing, bing, bing. And if the thing says they must be between so many characters and so many characters, it's not going to offer you one that's too short or too long. So it's good. It it is smart. There are a few services that I am delighted to pay my monthly or yearly annual, uh, my annual subscription. And and one of them is 1Password because you're constantly getting updates like this. This this software gets better and better and better over time. And I would hate to be in a position where I was like, oh, do I want to pay the upgrade feed this year? (laughs) Yes, I want to pay the monthly subscription on this. Yeah, exactly. They, I I agree with you completely. Um, Their family plan is really good value for money. And I would also say that they're, the, the plans they offer for, for enterprise use range from a for teams plan, which is basically a family plan, but with different nomenclature, so it doesn't sound wrong in the work environment, uh, right the way up to enterprise solutions that integrate with your Active Directory and give you single sign-on from Active Directory into one password. They have the full range at your disposal. I, I am a huge fan of the work they do. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I'm not seeing the smart password thing in there right now, but it might have to be you're on a website that has this smart password or, option. Or just because they blogged about a feature doesn't mean it's actually in the version they've pushed yet. It could be in their betas. Yeah. Because announcing a feature and having it be on in your palm of your hand doesn't always go immediately. Now, I do see, I, I do see if, I, if I go into memorable, um, mm-hmm. this is actually real words. It just said probate, sinister, brevity, agur. I don't know what that is. Waterloo. Yeah. And it put periods between it, or I can change it to commas and spaces and hyphens and things. I think you're still so, seeing the old password generator because they've slimmed down the UI in the new one so that there's much less buttons to push, which they are yeah. touting as a feature. So I don't think you have the new interface yet by the sound of it. Okay. Well, that's, that's stuff I had not seen before, though. Okay. I, 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 say, I just use my own, so I, I never see what they offer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I occasionally see it when it, it wants to do something. So, uh, Interesting insights then. So these are not, right, so this is entirely optional extras, but I, did, they just, I just was impressed by these. So there's a podcast that's usually stupendously nerdy. Um, Nocilla Castaway, I think it was Nocilla Castaway. Was it Caleb or? Darn. 
Oh, I'm so bad at remembering these things. Oh, one of one of our valued Nasilla Castaways put me onto this podcast years ago. It's generally speaking an extremely nerdy podcast about the minutia of programming. <laughs> but sometimes they uh, broaden their reach a bit and the guys are really good interviewers and if you're into nerdy programming stuff they're actually really fun to listen to. But this time they broadened their reach and they had a wonderful episode giving you real-world insights into some of the notable breaches we've all heard about on this segment over the years. And it's really interesting to see them from the point of view of the victim companies who end up on the wrong end of these things, and mm. how it's not always as outrageous as you think, and how when you look at it from the other point of view, especially the early breaches when no one really understood how these things worked, it was just a really good insight into how this how this happens for reals. Um, so I just... You know, and it's, it is very much about, you know, I mean, the the title of the show is Big Breaches and How to Avoid Them, right? The experts they have on are there to tell you how it's happened in the past and how to stop it happening again, right? So that is, <laughs> good, good. That is an important yeah. message. Um, Another one then, we talked a lot, I think, last week about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, someone linked me to a blog post from someone looking at it from the art history point of view, and it's it's very insightful. Um, so that's linked in the show notes. And then just because it's cool, Bank of England have a new £50 note on the way. They chose to feature the computer scientist, mathematician, cryptographer, extraordinaire, and arguably war hero, Alan Turing, who has always oh, been... Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. It is. So you can read about that in the Naked Security article linked in the show notes. And then in terms of palate cleansers, I want to recommend a podcast for you so that you can hoover up hours and hours of your time. (laughs) The people at Vox have started a new podcast exploring the edges of scientific understanding. The things we know we don't know. That's where all the cool science happens, is that the bit where our knowledge runs into our ignorance. And so it's called Unexplainable, and it is fascinating. So it is really <laughs> cutting crazy, edge science. That's a crazy title. Like, well, so if I listen to this, you're not going to explain it to me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to explain what we don't know and why we don't know it, and more importantly, why it really matters. And basically, this is the science being worked on right now today, and this is the stuff every school kid should be inspired to solve. This has been around since 2016, Bart. Well, then it, then it got a serious revamp. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, it went for, let's see, 2016. Yeah, it looks like there was a, it's, and then it was in 2018, a little bit of 2017, a little bit of 2018, a bunch of 2019. Actually, sorry, Alison, my understanding is that this was a recurring segment on a different show, which got spun out. So they must have gone back in time. Oh, okay. And pulled all of the old episodes out of the original podcast, because this is new as being a standalone show. Huh. Okay. Yeah. February 12th. There's a jump from October 30th or October 2020 to February of this year. Okay. Very cool. It is extremely cool. I'm feeling Steve's Steve's going to want that one. He absolutely is. I've been thoroughly enjoying uh, getting caught up. So that's it. Well, that was, that was a lot of fun. Oh, good. A a particularly deep dive. But anyway, hopefully it was, you know, as I say, you you enjoy them. So I, I feel good and it's always fun to write them. Anyway, folks, you all know what I'm going to say. Until next time, be absolutely sure so you stay patched, so you stay secure.
Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. And everything is fiddly recordings. You know, I didn't get any this week. And the only thing we can figure is that that entire story about the Meteor Bridge gets to count as everything is fiddly. Because that certainly was fiddly, but we were victorious over it. Anyway, you can send your comments and suggestions also along to me by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com like we talked about earlier. Want to become a patron? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to use PayPal for one-time donations instead? Podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation like Tony Walla did in Facebook, just joining it for the first time, podfeed.com slash Facebook. Or you can chat with us over in Slack, and that's podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, where do you think you go? You head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.